Everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. We have a really important episode of Empire today. Today, we are sitting down with Jordi from Salini Capital and Mika Xparify, one of the smartest people uh, I've ever met in crypto um, and also a writer of a very good blog out there that you guys should check out. Today, we're talking about UST and Luna and Terra, uh, obviously probably the most important thing going on in crypto today. This is not an episode to dance on anyone's grave. This is not an episode of, of pointing blame at anyone. I think we're really just here to revisit like how the hell did this happen? What happened? Uh, and really, more importantly, some lessons learned and, and, and really where do we go from here? So just to kick it off, maybe uh, Mika, if I could pick on you for this really broad general question, I'm, what did happen here? Like this, this week aside, right? Not talking about this specific week, but what happened here? How did we get here? How did this thing, UST and Luna, get so big? Yeah, I mean, if we look at the sort of current problem, um, the stablecoins have been growing very uh, a lot over the past like couple of years. It's a use case that tends to go only to the right and up, and and there's a few different models of doing this, and and the Luna and Terra model is perhaps like the uh, one that's the sketchiest or like the most uh, complex in terms of how you justify how it's able to maintain its peg, uh, particularly in adverse situations. The market we've been in has been sort of very positive and very forgiving uh, on sort of the downside risk uh, before the last couple of months. And I think the way we've got here is that now we're in a different type of market than we've been in before. Uh, and Luna's in like a really different type of market than it's ever been before at scale. And uh, what we saw essentially was the first time that it's really being tested and sort of having to and failing that process a lot but it, it starts with very simple things i think where they're they're just more sellers than buyers right and that happens every now and then to stable coins and the stable coin goes off its peg uh, but really when when that happens the arbitrage mechanisms kick in and i think it's quite obvious that here the luna arbitrage that how it's supposed to maintain its peg it sort of didn't kick in and immediately we went into this process where we fall back on trying to find these big buyers who are able to keep the market price now uh good but uh not really like uh, the algorithmic side of the luna system didn't really like ever really take over here and and i think that's sort of how we ended up where we are right now yeah definitely there's this um this concept of um, getting to getting too big to be able to manage and as this thing grew and grew and like a lot more um, money came in that was not necessarily, you know, convinced about the ecosystem, they were just maybe trying to get some anchor yield. Um, the size of the door to get to exit was not changing. And um, at some point, what happened over the weekend is people were withdrawing, causing other people to get scared, wanting to withdraw. And then the mechanism, uh, like Mika said, there's like a mechanism in place supposed to hold the peg. Um, there's some constraints around the mechanism. We can get into the details later. But, uh, you know, there's like a daily cap on how much can be absorbed. There's also just a cap on, uh, you know, how much liquidity there is for Luna, which is the other side of the uh, equation, because the, the ARB to get out is through Luna. Um, and uh, that kind of causes this cascade. And of course, the Bitcoin reserves was supposed to be one of the defense mechanisms um, 
in place that takes time. And I think uh, we just didn't get to this like long-term state that could have possibly provided a bit more stability. Um, so yeah, I mean, ultimately it, it grew at a pace that was very rapid and, um, you know, we really, really weren't, were not able to get to the long-term state, I think. So I want to ask both of you, um, there, I mean, how, how did it get this big? There was a number of criticisms around, obviously this people use the word Ponzi liberally in crypto. Sometimes it is unfounded because the word Ponzi is very, you know, I think people use that liberally. And I, I want to ask you guys, like, one, do you believe it was a Ponzi? And two, how did, I mean, there's a lot of institutional capital behind this project, um, you know, using UST and farming it on Anchor. And I understand the yield is pretty enticing. And so, you know, we're all yield farmers in crypto. But when you see a Ponzi, it's sort of like you don't want to be a Talib Turkey. I played algorithmic stable coins before, EST, DST, basis coin. You understand that at some point, these things can collapse pretty rapidly. So I want to maybe start there. A, do you think this is a Ponzi? If so, why? And then what did, what did other people believe that wasn't a Ponzi to, to put so much capital risk? Like, I don't necessarily view it as a Ponzi, uh, although there are like elements of that in it. I, I would say that the biggest misconception is just like an optimism around the previous stable coins. You always have someone sort of absorb the downside risk. And here... Uh, you have Luna holders who do that, but you have something a bit more than what ESD and these other algorithmic stablecoins had, which is you have this blockchain with like a lot of things apparently happening on it, a lot of economic activity that you can extract rent from. And that uh, economic activity is the one that really like backs it. And I think there was like a, too much positivity around how, is that economic activity sort of real? And, and is that something that actually makes people really excited to hold uh, Luna when there is a situation like this where you're going to have to like mint more and you you're going to struggle with the peg. Uh, I've been I've been accused of using the word Ponzi very liberally. I'm definitely one of those on, on that side. Um, I, I did use the word Ponzi to describe UST. I don't mean it as a scam, like someone is trying to rug pull. You know, there are actual scams out there. Um, and I, I talk about there being a spectrum. And, um, you know, you have BitConnect on one side and things like Hex that are kind of close to that side. And then on the other side, you know, you, you kind of have like more sustainable um, ecosystems. Um, I, I think it was it was a Ponzi trying to not become a Ponzi. Basically, when you're in the game of creating money, you want this like incredibly difficult end state to be reached where people view your coin or, or your token as money, as like as the end state. Like UST, I can get paid in UST and I can just spend UST and I don't need to think about converting it into something. There's nothing to convert it into. It's just UST. And I think, you know, people also have the same view about Bitcoin or Ethereum. And those are also on that path of trying to get into this, you know, end state where people just view it as base money. And they both have like large communities um, viewing it that way. So I think UST was trying to become another one of those. And they were executing um, well enough that they managed to really escape, you know, the usual constraints of like one, $2 billion. And they got to like tens of billions of dollars because of, of just how well they were executing on that path. But ultimately, if you don't manage to convince people that they don't need to convert out of UST, that UST is the money, 
um, then then things can collapse is kind of what we saw. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. My foregone conclusion after participating in a lot of these like ESD, DST and base, base coin was, you know, pure game theory kind of doesn't work. Uh, you need to have like utility, usability drives stability. And I think that speaks to your point, Jordi, which is, um, I think Terra started as a project that said, we're going to have this wallet called Chai to support e-commerce, like support commerce. And that felt to me like a different approach and a, and a pretty healthy go-to-market, which is if you can become a usable stablecoin in, in Korea and other markets, then people want to have UST. But if you get discounts, if you have a number of perks uh, across like a merchant network, and then I think that worked reasonably well uh, up to a point. And then it felt like kind of like over the last 12 months, it just went from being with Anchor in particular and Mirror, it just became way more speculative speculative than and, and a lot of large players like just using UST to farm and get that sweet 20% APY on, on Anchor, which is it's not sustainable. But I think it's not just about it being speculative because there's a lot in crypto that's speculative, obviously. So UST took the approach that a decent decentralized stable needed utility, right? And a lot of the other decentralized stables that you mentioned, Santi, haven't taken that approach. Uh, and the utility they thought was going to be chai, but I don't think anyone's really spending that much UST. So yeah, it turned into so Anchor was this like was the was the best app for that for that. And I turned Santi's comment into a question of like. Did Anchor cause this flood of capital into Anchor? Did that cause UST supply to get too far over its skis? And did that have any sort of impact on what we're seeing today? Absolutely. I mean, that was the the main... I think, it, look, it, I don't think it was orchestrated. I think it was by accident. If you, if you kind of look at the history of this thing, what happened is they had this during the whole DeFi, you know, bull run, and nobody cared because 20% yields were not attractive and so you know for a lot of last year anchor was not necessarily some uh focus of uh, of the ecosystem at all and then as like DeFi yields went down and you have this stable yield that just stays put at some point i think unexpectedly the use case of anchor became so large and the seniorage that they were making by you know being able to print ust for real money um became so sizable that they just let it keep going. So in terms of the yield itself being unsustainable, I'm not sure that that's what caused this current issue. I think it might be more what you said, um, that basically it just got very large and uncontrollable and unable to take of supply. I would say that utility is, uh, there's sort of a, maybe a mix here, which is that utility brings some sort of a stability to the stablecoin. But I think what we've seen actually is sort of the opposite utility brings demand, but when we're talking about a stablecoin, it seems to be like the stablecoin is only as good as the thing that backs it. And what is that like collateral? And here, where then it's the sort of economic activity on Luna and the willingness of people to hold Luna through it, like these minting periods, especially, um, and versus something like DAI, where it's so straightforward, where it's always backed by collateral. So you never have the issue of really going off of the peg, at least on the downside, like there are nuances there that need to be thought of both ways, actually. But you don't see that problem on the upside at all, because when you go up and the demand is too high for the $1 price to be $1, uh, you can just always mint more and put the price down. So it, it's a very easy problem to have. Uh, you can react to that uh, volatility, but you can't really react to the downside one in the same way. So 
I would say that like utility is actually the wrong way to think about it in terms of stability. Utility is just something that creates demand, but it doesn't guarantee anything about stability. So let's talk about the collateral for a second here. Initially, it was just Luna backing this. And and maybe just why would people believe that Luna has any value in the first place is question number one. And then question number two is obviously most recently uh, LFG uh, decided to buy all this Bitcoin um, to uh, as collateral. Of course, the criticism there is, well, you, you're using even Bitcoin as a very volatile asset that can swing 80% through cycles. So it puts into question the actual, um, you know, the actual like soundness of that collateral. Uh, in terms of the collateral, I think when you have the chain backing it, it's this nebulous concept because who knows how much a chain is worth. Um, and it's fine when it's small. I think at some point, because of all the anchor money coming in, they were able to raise a lot of money um, through their reserves and through like open market operations. And they were just deciding, you know, do we, do we buy stablecoin here? Which is kind of, you know, this concept that some people like, some people don't like. I mean, DAI, for example, is obviously backed by USDC. And then what's the point of DAI? Like, there's this kind of like question to be asked. And, um, you know, they took the approach that we can just use Bitcoin as uh, the most decentralized form of money to, um, to back things. And in a way, you, you can see it as like they started being long Bitcoin um, in a leveraged fashion that can get liquidated if um, if Bitcoin price drops, for example. That's not exactly the case because it's not like they're fully collateralized by Bitcoin. You know, it was just a small portion of, um, of the UST. But there is that element. So, you know, the upside was there. I think it was a bit of a gamble. I mentioned that word gamble and I got a lot of heat for it. But when you're kind of looking at end states and you say, well, if it three X's, then we're over collateralized and everything's fine. No one's ever going to try to attack us because we're going to have this like war chest of, you know, tens of thousands of Bitcoin. And, you know, in the year 2023, 2024, that Bitcoin could be so valuable that like our, our stable coin is, is really backed. Um, but yeah, we never really got to see that long distance uh, upside because the, you know, the, the macro environment is so tough right now that we just got the downside. Let's, uh, I mean, this is kind of a reminder, like, Everything is kind of a social contract. So you look at a U.S. dollar and it says it's backed by kind of the faith of the U.S. government, which has, you this know. Does, this like, does remind you an uh, awful lot of, of fiat, right? Print and debase to remain solvent, bring more people in until it breaks again, and then continue to bring more people in and more capital. That, that, that's my point. Like, I think like theoretically, these things are pretty fascinating experiments, but time and time again, we see that they haven't really kind of worked in crypto because we are still in a very early fragile state of this market, which we can talk about, like there are rumors of market manipulation. There are rumors of folks seeing an attack vector and, and exploiting that. Um, DeFi is a very adversarial environment. So maybe if we can transition a little bit to that and, and understand Amika, you mentioned earlier that kind of the, the mechanism didn't kind of work. Uh, so let's dive deeper into that because there are kind of rumors out there circulating that there was uh, someone out there came out pretty well and profited a ton from this from this fallout. Yeah, having thought about this a little bit, just uh, who who the attacker was and and what they really did and and how horrible that was, uh, I sort of come to a conclusion that ultimately, if you think about the big picture of Luna and and this system sort of going forward in the future, this was ultimately like relatively a tame attack. 
Like you, you're starting with this, uh, when you were looking at the on-chain data, you start with this 85 million swap that starts to put the curve pool into imbalance. And then slowly the curve pool starts to get more and more into imbalance. And then you start seeing that, okay, there will be like a pretty big war here. I think that's where people underestimated. They thought that if it just went off a peg a little bit, we've seen that before, that's fine. I don't think they really realized that the market started to be very, very imbalanced there and that the amounts to protect this would have to be very large and that it would be like a real, real issue. So yeah, I think it it was, it ultimately, like the way I think about the attack is just that, that it, it wasn't that serious. You would expect something much worse to happen in the future at scale. The market conditions could be much more adversarial against you. We could be in a much longer bear market with much longer draw or harder drawdowns. So the fact that it couldn't sort of really survive this uh, in its current state wasn't really to me like a vote of confidence on algorithmic stable coins because uh, whether or not someone made a lot of money, but it's still, it's still a very small attack by someone compared to like the things you could imagine in the future these systems having been able to take. So does this feel like, I mean, there's, there are a lot of kind of conspiracies floating around. So there's everything from like, there's a good chance that some very large TradFi fund put on a massive BTC short, used it to break the USD peg as a way to realize the gain. And um, there's, there's uh, I think Charles Hoskinson just shared something uh, on Twitter this this morning about BlackRock and Citadel borrowing $100,000, 100K Bitcoin from Gemini. Uh, they swapped that into B, uh, that into UST, and this was like all a lead up to a big attack. Then there's something that's maybe a little more reasonable, like um, you know, there's just some liquidity that was kind of pulled from Four Pool, um, and it wasn't a Citadel, but some maybe just a, a fund taking advantage of an inefficient market. So what maybe Jordi, I'd ask you, like what seems like the likely situation here? Um, I think it's extremely unlikely that. Citadel and BlackRock are getting involved in this, <laughs> but, it, but it makes a good it makes a good story, Jory. <laughs> it, it, it makes a really good Reddit, Wall Street bets. Citadel is kind of like the Darth Vader of, of uh, the ecosystem, um, but I am extremely confident that that that's not what happened. Uh, now, whether there was some DeFi native whale that found an opportunity to start profiting and and saw a weakness, kind of like a George Soros style, uh, it's possible. Um, it's kind of 50-50. I can also see the case where there's just this cascade of people being worried because other people are worried and, and that just kind of builds on itself because when this whole thing started over the weekend, I was watching it extremely closely. At the beginning, we just had maybe like 100 million, 200 million leaving um, Anchor and around 300 million uh, people that I know started buzzing and, and just saying, okay, I'm going to take the 30, 40 bips hit at the time, which was, you know, it was like 99.7 on UST. And I can just imagine that cascading where it's like, well, okay, now it's 1%, like, and then it's 2%. Um, I, th I think at some point, yeah, just, just the mechanism between like Luna and UST and, and, and what, how that works, um, started to get poked at in ways that were only theoretical before. And for the first time became practical, like what happens if um, and I was, I guess, a bit surprised that there were not contingency plans really in place and it, and it all kind of felt very haphazard in terms of how do we respond and, and like, you know, jump trying to possibly like, um, provide some liquidity into the different like curve pools or on Binance. Um, and then we, we just had so much fluctuation that. I think uh, once the trust got lost, it, it was hard to put it back in. 
This is like a classic bank run, which is, it's sort of like there comes a point, an inflection point that it, everything cascades dramatically. Um, we saw the peg drop to like, I think it was 75 or like kind of mid, like 80. And then it went all the way back up to like close to 90. And then obviously after that, it just collapsed to where it is now, which is, what is it? 30, 40 cents now. Um, but to your point, Jordy, I want to like maybe dive deeper into maybe two questions. If you're an investor, like what did you have to believe? Because you always kind of stress test these things and like you do simulations, hopefully. Like why do you think so much institutional capital was just kind of playing in this Talib Turkey musical chairs game? Uh, did they just never believe that this type of bank run would have been possible? Um like how concentrated were these pools where if one large fund like yanked, uh, it would have caused like this massive, de like, inf like degradation of trust that it spiraled out of control. Or was it like a very small kind of like, was it, I'm just kind of curious to understand if you're a fund, like, why would you place, why would you play in this system in the first place? I think, you know, there's two approaches that funds take and the, the type of fund matters. If you're very, very safe, very institutional, you're not even going to touch it. You're just, just going to say like, this is not fully backed. Theoretically, there's some way to get out, but I don't want to touch it. And then you have sort of like this um, gray area where you want to profit if there is like an edge. Um, and I would put a lot of funds in this category, like all the Alameda jumps, you know, different, different funds where you basically look at it as an opportunity to get out before other people get out as long as you understand you know where where the exit is you can enter the building and know where the fire escape is and you know still get some yield um, and and that's uh, I, guess, I guess to the point of it being an adversarial environment that's one of the things I like the least about DeFi is is it is this sort of you know some people have more information than others some people have more technical expertise than others and especially with an app that just lets you click a button and deposit your money as a savings account. Um, you don't necessarily have the level of sophistication to understand where the exits are. And I think what we saw was that most of the wallets did not exit and most of the um, really large institutions exited because they were the ones really kind of on top of it. So just to answer your question, as a fund, it makes sense to participate if, if you understand how the structure is, um, but it is very adversarial. And, and of course, like, you know, retail can often be the last to, um, to move. I think as a fund, if you really believe in this, you sort of do have to believe in only really two steps here, which is the first one is that there won't be any short-term selling so large that you won't be able to stop it and stop the beginning of a bank run. And the second is once you stop that, that the Luna token holders, essentially you'll be able to sell your UST back to them and and create this arbitrage, which uh, now hasn't really existed. People have used the word sort of incorrectly, but you imagine that you're able to play this arbitrage like just over and over again and, and it's completely fine. But the problem I think there really comes from just the fact that you can look at the numbers and say that, okay, the UST supply, it's over 10 billion, 15, 15 and 18 billion, whatever. And then you look at how much were these uh, big players right now at the liquidity event able to absorb and it wasn't a big it wasn't a large percentage of that 
So uh, if you you didn't really have to imagine a lot of the supply really moving until you realized you would be in big trouble. And once you were in big trouble, then you get the cascading effects uh, very quickly. So I think it, it sort of is a weird underestimation of how much money can move and how much how, on your confidence to just hold the peg and hold the line and make sure everything's okay. And then being able to exit that position down the line again, once you've taken that arb for yourself. Mm. Mika, do you think um, when you look back at something like Bernie Madoff, and I really don't want to, I actually, I don't love using the word Ponzi here because something like Bernie Madoff is a Ponzi scheme. Like this feels uh, different to me. Um, It's kind of maybe like intentions uh, behind it, good intentions versus bad intentions. Um, But Bernie Madoff got, he he was running that for like 17 years until it got, and the reason it got uncovered is because the market absolutely shit the bed in 2008, right? And so uh, Mika, I'd, I'd, I'd throw this back to you of how long could this have gone on and, and is there a way this could have been successful if the market wasn't in the condition that it's in right now, where you know equities are down 60%, the Fed is yanking interest rates up, the CPI print again today exceeded expectations? Like, could this have gone on longer uh, if all of this stuff wasn't in the condition that it's in? The answer is yes. And I think when you're thinking about the success of Luna, you really have to separate it into short-term, mid-term, and long-term. Where short-term, it's just, are you able to find buyers to match the sellers? at any given moment and that's the short-term game you're playing you might actually like succeed at this right now get the peg back everything's sort of semi-okay even though the reputational hit is large but you might win that game then in the midterm the game becomes a lot more like okay if the crypto market and the market overall is very negative it's probably more likely that you would see this kind of bank run at some point down the line so uh yeah, you may save it today, but you're not able to save it for three months consecutively from this moment. Like, I would imagine if the market is very poor, even if you save it today, you're not going to be just able to save it down the line in the same way anymore. So you need that positive market really over the midterm uh, to make it successful. Then in the long term, it really is this question of whether or not it's possible to build such a robust economy on a blockchain where that economic activity without significant collateral itself uh, is so useful and sort of so uh, highly valued that any stablecoin based on uh, that activity as collateral really is able to succeed. So I think in all these short-term, mid-term, long-term, you you have very, very different scenarios that could play out. And, and uh, I think they sort of would have played out in each variation, uh, like just depending on the global macro environment, basically. So I'm curious, like... Um... What does this mean for the future of like decentralized stablecoins? I kind of stopped playing in these games after ESD and DSD. For me, that was just like the it just was clear that it was it was very difficult to pull off these these things and but because it's very adversarial. Um, but Mika, you talk about like and Jordy, you also mentioned this like you were kind of surprised that there were no kind of contingency plans in place by the foundation or just a group of that. Are, um, I mean, I'm sure that if, if you're part of the Terra team, like you would have thought through these simulations. Um, what kind of contingency, like if you were to build something like Terra again, and I'm sure someone will try because this in crypto, people control C, control V all the time. Like what kind of contingency plans, what kind of different architectural design kind of things would you do differently? Or would you just say, this is not possible. Stop doing it. Um, well, first of all, we've, we've had the control C, control V, right? We have Tron, Tron DAO, you know, this, this stuff, uh, just came out. Um, 
we even have something on near although it seems to be like not as aggressive so so maybe uh they're not trying to um create you know th this um exact flyable effect that, that luna had but maybe let's take a step back and, and just talk about what is the vision for decentralized stablecoins and then we can think about like will, will people keep trying to do it so just broadly speaking you have centralized stablecoins usdc and you know usdt can even possibly be put in that category where you have like a real world bank that is physically keeping the money supposedly um, to uh, be able to exchange back and forth and uh, of course, like with the ethos of crypto and uh, the cypherpunk um, ethos that we don't want to deal with bankers and, and that kind of like institutional side. We just want to have like a free, transparent, you know, on-chain world. So, um, you know, there's a lot of believers in that. And that's why people keep trying to create something that doesn't rely on an actual bank account um, to do a conversion and we can have a stable, I don't know, stable, but like a fiat kind of pegged um, value system that we can interact with and, and use. So the vision obviously is something that's appealing to many people. In, in terms of um, the types of things that we've seen, we have the fully collateralized and over collateralized, which are the die maker type of uh, model, which are more secure, but also like very inefficient capital wise, it's very hard to create more DAI. You know, it needs so much backing to be able to do that. And even that has a lot of issues with like, you know, the ways that things can get liquidated. Um, and then we've had these um, copycats now of, of Luna that uh, will probably take this as a warning. And I imagine that they're not gonna, you know, play it as uh, fast and loose given, given what they've observed. Um, although, you know, Justin Sun might, might surprise us cause uh, he, he likes to, um, you know, uh, be creative, but I think what the future holds is, uh, you know, the next thing we'll, we'll probably look at is something like Frax, which is a hybrid model that, um, has more ways and, and a kind of more complicated design to keep its stability. But, um, We'll have to see if that has the right combination of, you know, decentralization, stability, and, and scalability that um, the ecosystem looks for. Jordy, what's the what, like? If you're if you're a betting man, which I know you are, what is the like likelihood that something like another decentralized stable works in the near term, like something like Frax? So now, because to me, it feels Santi mentioned a bunch of these decentralized stables. It feels like we're just like okay didn't work onto the next, didn't work onto the next, but the scale of these things keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I mean, Terra just brought this, uh, I'm looking at the market cap right now, it's like two or 3 billion. It was 40 billion. That's the size of Lehman Brothers when they went down, that was 60 billion. Uh, Bear Stearns at their height was 25 billion, right? So the, the scale of these things is absolutely massive now. So do you worry at all that we're just kind of onto the next, onto the next, and they get bigger and bigger. And uh, at, at some point, you know, the scale of these things is like, the ripple effects are gonna be too strong, so. Uh, I'm, I'm very confident that that's not, that's not the case. I think this this was the sort of seminal moment that will go down in, in like the, you know, the crypto history at the point at which we stopped really believing that something that's not collateralized can work. Um, we might, so Frax is semi-collateralized. It's collateralized to a certain extent and then it allows itself to get less collateralized as its, um, as its value kind of grows, let's say. So uh, it's a very well thought out model that might break, but um, 
is not as aggressive, but also has not seen the kind of success that you mentioned, like the, you know, the huge, you know, 20 to $40 billion, which UST has, I will put that down to two things. One is, you know, Do Kwan, um, might have, you know, possibly failed in, in this experiment now, but he's clearly an extremely capable operator that has made many, many friends in powerful places that were able to kind of, you know, really support the ecosystem and, and, um, you know, spread it across different exchanges and, and, you know, create, create this like liquidity that was needed to even get it to this point. Um, and then secondly, you know, th this anchor idea sort of out of nowhere, I think appeared that drew a lot of people in because what we don't realize as crypto natives is, you know, if you just walk outside the street, like 99.9% .9 of people don't even know what's happened, you know, unless like you're living in like a financial, like a uh, hub, like in the city of London or something, I don't think people out there even realize the kind of like huge ripple wave that is going through the crypto market. And a lot of those people um, are the types that would use an app that says like, you know, you can get 20%. This is like a stable coin and um, they can buy in. So there's such a large gap between like the crypto native world and the kind of more retail world that was bridged by by like this this type of savings account um, that you know it, it, it did create this this huge flywheel. I don't think we're gonna see like an eighty billion dollar one and like hundred and sixty billion. Like I don't I think we're I think we're done uh, because this this story will always get pointed to. I don't know Santiago. What do you think about that? That was a great quote by someone says, "Look, ESD and DSD. It's like there's in gang fighting. It was only Degens. So you know, and this is different." Because you now, there's civilian violence. People got hurt. A lot of people got hurt. And I think um, we'll see how regulators react to that. I think there's going to be some regulatory action or or some type of regulator is going to come out and said, hey, we need to stop this because people get hurt. Uh, and it's not just gangs <laughs> against gangs. And and I think you're right, Jordy. Like, you know, I don't think the space is, is kind of ready for, for this stuff. It, it sucks to see all these people not properly understand how risky these experiments are. Um, and it does put into question, like we are creating better on-ramps and wallets and experiences for people to play in this decentralized, what is still a wild world, like wild west. And we need better guardrails and disclosures and disclaimers around the level of risk. Like if you got to ask yourself, like if you don't understand where the yield is coming from, you are the yield. Like, you're earning 20% on a stable coin is paradox. Like it, it's oxymoronic. Like it's just, it's too good to be true in many ways. Yeah. But so was getting a $5 Uber ride in, in New York, right? Today it's $50. That's just, a, it was just a market. And none of these businesses would have ever gone off the ground unless you're in this free kind of cheap month, like over the last 20, like over the last 10 years, you've been in this QE environment, like without VCs subsidizing that free Uber ride, none of this would have happened. No, no, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I just push back. I don't think the 20% on Anchor was the problem. The 20% on Anchor was was a marketing spend. And it Yeah, but that's, a, no that's a clickbait. And, and that's what I'm pushing back on. Like, like, okay, like I understand that you need to reward people, but like people don't n rationally think this way. Like they see 20%, they're like, oh, it's a stable coin. Like, you know, it's, it's what could go wrong, right? Yeah. It, here, let me, let me, let me put myself in a dangerous seat here, which is almost defending some of this. What you know, would, what would you have done 
So if I'm putting myself in doe seat, you got to bootstrap the hell out of this new stable coin. You're trying to do everything, right? You're you're putting a bunch of dollars into like the um, the floating rate on Anchor should have been like probably, I don't know, five or six percent or something like that, maybe even lower. They put it at 20 percent in the same way that Uber, a ride costs 50 bucks a day, but they're at five dollars to bootstrap demand. And like mm-hmm. obviously doe was completely crazy at some points on uh, on Twitter, like coming at anyone who took him down. But like he was trying to bootstrap money basically so the question for you guys is like i don't i don't know how do, how do you approach it differently when you when the, the vision and the scope of your project is like so grand here mika maybe throw it to you yeah in a bull market it's easy for us to and this is maybe something that industry players big investors could do better is really be uh sophisticated about and rigorous about the, uh, the mechanics and thinking about and communicating those and not backing things that they know they, they essentially know that may have holes in a way, but it's just because you can get away with those holes during a good market and everyone's sort of having fun and, and yeah, it's, it's a party. So I think that that's one part that I think like just our industry could do a better job. If I was in the UST position, uh, because, and this is just a fundamental design thing, like what, how does, how does the thing help maintain the stability? Well, it's that it has good collateral. I think the, what I would have done is every bit of growth, and every bit of value I would have extracted out of the system, I would convert it into good collateral, which is stable coins. Or if I don't like stable coins, at least like more and more ETH more aggressively, you know, just all the time, get that thing up there so that it, it's like a frack situation where it covers 80 something percent of the thing. And then we can, then we can, then we don't have any of these issues, right? Then we can uh, fight the battles on the liquidity front as much as we want we, and, and we'll be fine. So I think it, it's a fundamental flaw with the system. Ultimately, I think, but that brings this down and would have done so later if not now. So uh, if you're going to go to this direction where you bootstrap it very aggressively, you have to somehow be able to convert that into that sustainable growth. And I think the only really sustainable thing that you could have done here is is to have better and more collateral. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm only pushing back on this because you just can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Everyone in crypto is like no accredited investor laws, free markets, free markets rule everything. And then they're like, something like this happens. And it's like, we needed more information. We, every time, you know, every, every time you bought UST, you should have got a disclaimer or something. And I don't know, you just, you can't have it both ways. You can't have completely free markets and no, no laws around these things, but then also have disclaimers and information every time you buy an asset. Like I'm, I'm all pro innovation. Like I still think we need more diversity and diversified state. Like fully like decentralized stable coins that is the achilles heel of DeFi, and and we need that and i totally agree with mika's point you needed to have more collateral like i didn't we had doe on the episode uh, a couple of weeks ago and a lot of people criticized kind of saw his move of buying bitcoin as a reserve as like acknowledgement that a pure kind of like trust-based algorithmic stablecoin wouldn't have worked that you needed to have collateral and I agree with Mika. I think it's a little too little, too late. Um, now, the question that you posed at the beginning of the episode is a really good one: is how did we get to this point where it was so big? And I think it's uh, what Mika said, which is you, you were just kind of in a kind of mostly like bull market environment where these things, like in bull markets, these like design flaws don't really show up. It's really when you stress test the system where kind of shit hits the fan and 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 things break. Um, and when things break in this environment, people get hurt and there's no bailouts. There's no 1-800 number to call. And I don't know what the answer to that is, candidly. 
I just think from a front end user perspective, I think more like like a questionnaire, like even when you're going on FTX or like Binance, you need to take some sort of level of test to assess your understanding of using these products. We can probably maybe beef that up a little bit. I don't have a perfect answer for that, but um, from a me mechanism standpoint, I think for me, it's, uh, you know, DAI continues to be the least sexy, but I think the most resilient and proven stablecoin out there, and you, it's not perfect because it is a lot of the collateral is USDC and it's centralized, but still maybe Frax is, is a good one too. And, and we should have Sam on the episode talk about his kind of the mechanism that they use. Yeah. I mean, I want to say something about like these mechanisms because I talked to a lot of really, really intelligent people who are crypto native, you know, running big funds. And even for these guys, like trying to really wrap your head around exactly what the mechanism is doing, you know, it's not enough to just like read a explanation or a white paper or watch a video. Like it's so complex and I study these things and I still like have like 99% understanding. And then, you know, I, I've had to recently over the last few days kind of try to think and understand like where the flaws are. And I found some of them and I haven't even heard anybody discuss them uh, before. Obviously, you have some, some kind of complex mechanism where like Luna is supposed to be a store of value for money that goes into UST because you're buying Luna to convert it into UST. But if somebody like buys Luna at like $10 and sells it at $100, they are taking a lot of money out of the system. <laughs> and then if the liquidity is not there when people want to sell and no one's like willing to buy everything at $100 and, you know, the price moves. So like this kind of idea of like, you can look at market cap and you can say, well, 40 billion backs 10 billion. That's fine. And then it all kind of hides in illiquidity is kind of what I like to say, because you can't sell everything at $100. There's no buyer that's going to absorb that much. And as this thing gets to like 10, $20 billion, the amount that kind of get absorbed at a certain price point um, is a smaller and smaller percentage of, of the total market cap. Um, you know, like market makers uh, will only quote a certain number of uh, coins at, at like each price level. And pretty soon, like that money's left the system. Um, you know, you, you've had a lot of seed stage people that, you know, made a thousand X and exited into fiat and that money's not there then when people want to like leave um want to exit themselves so these things are super complex um i do want to say you know we're still in the early innings of DeFi. this thing is going to go on for many years we're doing experiments it, it it it's very sad and like you said like we're not dancing on anyone's graves like i'm very sad like that this is happening for like everyone that's like losing a lot of money um I didn't want this to happen or like, uh, I, I think it's, it's in a way part of the natural evolution of the cycle where we're, we're learning things. Okay. This didn't work. Let's, let's not do that again. I don't think we're going to keep trying to do this. Um, we'll, we'll adapt and, and something new will come about. And in the long run, we'll find what the solutions are, but we have to make those mistakes first. Jordi, I think you hit on a really important point there. And I, I did hear you talk about something with um, Jose from Delphi and the Bankless guys on the episode a couple of weeks ago, which is kind of related to what you're talking about of this multiplier effect when lunar, Luna goes down. So just to make, the, I, I want to make sure everyone kind of gets the full lay of the land in this episode. Can you just explain that that multiplier effect that you talked about on the, on the Bankless episode a, a few weeks ago? Yeah, so basically like Luna does not have a fixed supply. And that's the main difference compared to something like Bitcoin, for example. Like L new Luna can get minted um, from this mechanism from UST exiting and the amount that gets minted is, de is determined based on the price. Like there's a kind of like an Oracle price. 
So um, the unfortunate feedback loop is as the price of Luna goes down, people exiting UST can get even more coins of Luna. So as the price goes down by half, then you can get twice as much Luna. So that dilutes it even more. And then there's even more selling pressure because there's more coins. And that's kind of what we've seen um, over the last few days where the price just goes literally to a dollar or below a dollar um, based on like all this new supply because people exiting UST at some point. I don't think we've yet, um, as of airing of this episode, have had a case where UST was above Luna in price, but it got very close. So you can imagine exiting a million dollars of UST, you, you can get close to a million Luna coins um, which, yeah, like, I mean, that's very hard to absorb. Is this a case of something getting, so um, a lot of folks brought up George Soros, right? Breaking the Bank of England. Is this a case of these markets don't really get tested until they're big enough because it's not worth testing them, right? When, when, if a stable coin had $20 million market cap, 50 million, even $100 million market cap, it's not really worth it for a big fund to come in and try to break that market. But when you get to a $40 billion market cap, there's a lot of incentive to try to break these markets. And you're right, it's, you know, a lot of these people who are creating these things, they're maybe startup founders, first time founder, they've never created, a, what you're doing is you're creating economies here. And now when you get these systems that are so large, you're creating an incentive for some of the largest funds in the world to come in and try to break these markets to profit off of them. Is there, do you think that's happening here with Luna? Did this thing get so big that now there were so, much, so many eyes on it that it was actually incentivizing people to come break it? Um, personally, I, I think it's it's not so much that there were more eyes on it. I think it's that it became harder to control. Like when it was 100 million, it's not that somebody could have attacked it because, you know, Jump and, you know, uh, Three Arrows and whoever else was backing it can destroy somebody who's trying to short something that's 100 million. Like it, it's like peanuts. But is Jump willing to put billions and billions of dollars? I mean, people know Jump and they know they're big. They've done the $300 million wormhole. That was their own project. So if they valued that internally at like two, three billion dollars, which is what they were trying to raise at, of course they're gonna bail it out. But if it's someone else's project, will they like back it up with billions and billions of dollars? Um, right. We are talking about like a, a trading firm that is market neutral, you know, for the most part when, when they're trading. So it wasn't clear that they would be willing to take that much of a hit. So it might not be the case. I know exactly what you're talking about. Definitely like with smart contracts, you have that exact effect. Where like if there's only five million dollars, you won't get like the best hackers in the world to try to like manipulate that smart contract. But then you know at five hundred million dollars, you you'll get like an army of like North Koreans to um, to look into it as much as possible. But I think in this case, it's more of it's more of it got so big that the money is so substantial, people could not back it. Uh, Jordi, uh, I think your point is a fantastic one, which talks about the relationship between the the market, the value of the aggregate value of Luna and, and UST is, is something that people watch, were watching closely. I think what they didn't appreciate is like the order book kind of like, you, you can't sell everything at a hundred mil, a hundred, right. Uh, Luna, these have cascading effects, right. Um, on that point. So, you know, obviously Terra is trading out right now, like went all the way from a hundred to $2.28, um, cents. So, but it still has sort of an aggregate market cap of like 2.3 billion, um, UST 45 cents, 48 cents. Yeah. It's 49 at cents. Loon is at 423. Yeah. UST is at 52 cents. I'm seeing it has like a circulating supply of like 7 billion. 
where do we go from here? Um, well, if you look at just what those polls plus today, essentially, I, I do think it was a, a kind of, in a sense, small sense of giving up where now we're just going to have to go through this process with the current mechanism that there is, which means essentially that maybe to make a, like a company analogy, you're bailing out the sort of uh, bad stuff on your balance sheet by minting new equity, essentially. And you do have like a very large hyperinflationary problem um, when you're doing that here. And the precise mechanism and the limits on it, actually, I don't think matter really that much. It's more just the idea that, well, you know that there's this bad debt coming in that you have to absorb. Well, you know, your the, va- the value of your equity is sort of going to go down a lot uh, because of that. And, and that shows up as hyperinflation in the token and a very low price and, and the market cap collapsing. So, yeah, I think now it looks like we just have to go through this process Um this thing has been defended with like some billions already. I, I don't, this is the very difficult question. You never know when the seller is sort of exhausted really. So if you start trying to prop this up a bit more uh, with, with like, again, trying to put in like 500 million to a curve pool and do that dance again, you don't know how well that's going to go, but uh, you might want to try that again uh, to get it to peg. But even if you do, like you still have the fundamental system problem and, and in those Twitter uh, message he did say that oh yeah we want to collateralize this and that that's a process you basically have to start from zero um, with the fact that people already know that this mechanism doesn't really work and you've admitted that you need to collateralize it so that makes this I think a really really difficult challenge and and unless the market is like very forgiving I, I do struggle to see how exactly this gets like fixed. Before we go to you Jordi I want to ask you Mika just a quick follow-up which is what is the what is the collateral level that one should have? And this goes to the FRAX model because FRAX sort of says we're going to build trust and then the, the, it plays around on the curve around how much collateral there is underpinning. Um, what is that level? Because in, in this case, I think the aggregate value of that Bitcoin at that time was like no more than like 20% or so, much less, right? It was like a fraction, a very small fraction. I think we know that, well, I would say that conceptually, the more, the better. If you could have 10x collateral on the money supply, yes, do it. But it's just that that becomes sort of untenable from a scaling perspective. So uh, the more security you have, the more difficult it is to scale. And then when you just put the collateral level down, uh, the maker system, I think, is sort of inefficient. And and the margins you want to really work with are like 110, 120% kind of thing on your collateral types going forward. Um, I think Frax is doing like, okay, it's shown that the 80 whatever percent type of system that's okay as well so uh, it's it really is like sort of finger in the air at the moment but 20 didn't seem to be fine i think there were good reasons to be skeptical why 20 wouldn't be fine um at the larger scale i think it just needs to be like a relatively one-to-one match or like something close to it because you do always sort of run into this issue where well what if they're collateral sort of uh, and if, if you spend a collateral that's horrible right because if you just like spend it, it's like a bullet and it's gone and you can never use that again. So uh, having the collateral in this case, that didn't even actually help. It arguably made the thing worse because after you sell that collateral, well, then you don't have it anymore. So you start from zero. So you can't, you know, the value of your UST has technically like gone to the floor is zero now. It's not the BTC price anymore. So it sort of gets worse. So yeah, I think like a safe assumption right now is that projects should like start with that sort of 83% area and then as we get to scale, we can 
like think about whether or not that should be marginally pushed up or marginally down, but uh, otherwise it, it doesn't seem to work. Jordi, is this the end of the kind of Terra Luna ecosystem here? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of the viewers are, are kind of watching just for that question. Um, <laughs> I think it's a transformation of it. I don't think it's going to be the end. Um, there are certain assets that are both goodwill and tangible assets and also actual assets. Um, so we are talking a little bit without full information. We don't know exactly how much of the Bitcoin, if any, is left out of the um, initially $3 billion of Bitcoin that was bought. That has been moved around to different counterparties like Jump and, and other people and exchanges. And we don't actually know how much is left. There, there could still be quite a lot left. Um, we know there's some avalanche um, tokens that they still own. And we know that there is, you know, ultimately the, uh, the blockchain itself, which has different apps and has intellectual property. And let's not discount that although the community um, of Luna has suffered, a, a, I'm sure, like huge losses, there is some kind of like, you know, network value of, of the, those people and, and that, that attention value. So I think what Doe is basically saying at this point is um, we've tried to bridge this asset liability mismatch, which was in the billions of dollars. They tried to raise a round to start to bridge it. Um, it was my understanding that many people uh, were skeptical to put in you know, a lot of money into that round. And ultimately that approach was um, expressly kind of um, admitted to not be the case right now. So they're not gonna be getting a huge bailout. I think this price barrel at some point reduces the mismatch because things just get um, so cheap. Like, let's just take a thought experiment. Let's just say like UST went from a dollar peg to one cent. Well, suddenly like, you know, somebody can buy that debt and at one cent on the dollar and, and, and like everything's liquid and, you know, they, they can, the mechanism can start working. Um, so it, it shouldn't be worth one cent. Um, obviously the market is trying to figure out where it should be worth. It was a bit surprising to me that Luna was, when I went to sleep yesterday, was still, you know, worth 20, 30, $40. Um, the mechanism for UST is that it can keep redeeming itself for Luna. So it can keep pressuring the Luna price down and UST has, is like the senior debt, let's say out of all this, like they have the seniority. Luna cannot have any value while like UST is trying to get out. So, um, you know, should UST even be depegged? It's quite an interesting question. If there's any bid for Luna in the future, then UST should be pegged. And we might see it repeg once a lot of the um, UST gets sold at, at a low rate. And at some point, there's not much left to exit the system. So um, it is possible we see a repegging if there is some bid for Luna at some very low price in the future, where, um, you know, somebody says, well, this is worth something and I will put in some amount of money into it. And maybe there is still some collateral in Bitcoin or, or other coins. And, um, you know, the chain survives. Now, of course, you know, trust is lost and you're not gonna see all these institutions getting back into Anchor, right? They're not gonna go back in. Like, it's kind of like a traumatic event that you, you can't re return from. So what what's probably gonna happen is, um, you know, Doe will completely change the model. He'll go to some 
fully collateralized model. They will try to keep the chain and all the apps and all the DeFi and all the gaming and all the projects that are uh, building on the chain um, going, but without this like senior UST debt to dump on them constantly. So I think it won't die. That doesn't mean you should like long Luna. I don't recommend that. It's it's like a junior debt in like a very precarious situation. So you have to be very careful. Um, and yeah, it'll just transform into into something else. Is there an ARB here? Is there a way to play this? Are you playing it? I'm looking at the relation between UST and and Luna. I mean, the, the issue though is liquidity. In my, you know, you could theoretically like think about doing this, right? But when exchanges are halting withdrawals and the curve pool seems to be, there's a lot of congestion and there's a time delay, and so you're taking a lot of risk. So for anyone listening, like conceptually, yeah, you can set parameters and think about, oh yeah, like I'm just gonna like scalp and like profit and of the relationship of UST and Luna, but market participants and the way these things actually execute in practice, one, you probably can't do it at scale. And two, there's some time element and components that make this difficult, at least for now where things are a lot in, you know, in flux. Um, but, but I'm curious, Jordi or, or Mika, like, are you guys thinking about playing this at some point? Like there is a time where these assets trade at such a distress level that can make for a great investment. Um, there, there's a lot of trades going on right now. I can tell you um, just, from experience, kind of, um, there's going to be some huge, huge PL days that you'll hear about from the trading firms. Um, because when you have such an unwind of billions of dollars of an asset, it happens in such a messy way. No one's prepared for it. And you can see, like, across exchanges, you have, like, you know, crypto.com has $6 and FTX is like $1. So you can't move coins around, everything's broken, but there are ARBs out there. There's a lot of things to be done. Um, and I hope that, you know, the, the tower research and, and the, the jumps and all these companies who make all this money today will kind of put it back into the ecosystem in, in some, some way or another to support the ecosystem. Um, but for individuals, for like retail, there is no clear way to play this. You can think about long UST short Luna and think that, well, I can buy it at 40 cents. And if Luna goes to zero, then um, I'll be fine because I'll make it on, on kind of like the short. The problem with that is you have to be very careful with short squeezes. You can kind of get like, you know, if Luna suddenly spikes to $10, $20, you can just get liquidated and it, it, it's very dangerous game to play. So it's a game for professionals. Those games are being played, but I wouldn't recommend, um, there's no simple way to do it. So I, I wouldn't suggest it to anybody. Yeah, I would say the my good time in this place is sort of over in a way where, uh, I think you could see it from the on-chain data uh, that the situation would be serious uh, and that you would have to have this sort of fight for the peg and, and that there was a strong likelihood that it would break and that fundamental analysis is sort of done. I think another one right now to look at is just the sort of still like what's coming out of Anchor, Luna minting, and what that means for um, just the sort of sell pressure on Luna. So I think like those fundamental things still exist a little bit, but but the most interesting one... Uh, sort of went i want to transition a little bit that's what i'm saying i've been talking to a lot of market participants um i i tweeted earlier i was just i woke up and i was like okay well some firms may blow up it has felt like a crazy last 72 hours and i was thinking what are the systemic effects of this and i can think of a few um but i want to first ask both of you how are you seeing this impact and reverberate across the industry and the appetite for risk 
uh, in crypto. Put, putting aside macro for a second, because we always talk about like CPI came in at like eight handle, which was high. And but those are things that like I, I want to talk about like idiosyncratic things to crypto, like specific things. Macro is always macro. I think I'm on the pleasantly surprised side because given what's happened, you could have seen, you know, obliteration. Uh, the majors are holding up quite well. Altcoins is a different story. I mean, everything outside of maybe Bitcoin ETH um, has fallen a lot. And so it goes to show that there is this flight to quality aspect, even within kind of crypto natives where they'll say, well, I'm just going to go into the majors right now. And I'm happy to hold that for 10 years and, and not even think about like these short term fluctuations. And I was pleasantly surprised that there is a bid, um, even even during this potentially like $3 billion sale of Bitcoin. Uh, we don't know exactly how much was sold, but it got absorbed. Um, it wasn't the end of the world. I was kind of saying this from from before that this too big to fail narrative, I, I wasn't really believing it. I think people still believe in, um, in Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the other um, well-designed assets. And yeah, we might not see like a blow off top anytime soon. But I think given what we've seen, it's one of those situations where confidence can start to build that even in cataclysmic scenarios, this is not going to zero. Like we are there, like there, there is a future. Um, so it makes me quite optimistic in the long run. Mika, what, what about you? When you look back at March 2020, uh, it felt like DeFi was at risk. Uh, right now, it doesn't really feel like that. It feels like the Terra ecosystem is at risk. So what are the ripple effects of this? It felt very much at the time that we also took very clear lessons from why exactly, like what was the problem with MakerDAO precisely, and we sort of precisely addressed it. And there were these very like engineering, you know, very exact things that we could do to make these systems better. Whereas uh, the Luna one, it's still like a question of what will the system look like going forward and will there be collateral and what's the sort of relationship between Luna and UST. So there is a lot more in the air that will sort of be left hanging and maybe the interesting dynamic to follow that I would I would like to at least see this play out is that USDT uh, UST gets a pe its peg back and then um, people are sort of confident about Luna and, and do we see this sort of thing where people forget about this quickly uh, surprisingly quickly even though now it feels like the end of the world and there uh, whether or not we actually address those risks or do we just like go forward and have another party you know um, I think that that's a dynamic that hasn't played out in the market yet, but that's the one that I would be most interested to follow. It would be sort of the most interesting outcome, and a very very negative outcome I think could be that we, uh, that we just don't really react to it and just continue on the same path. And someone saved us, and they'll save us again in the future, you know. And and that sort of bad bad logic around this. So yeah, I think it's very different. Where and DeFi really I think took very specific lessons and implemented those at the protocol level and, and made these systems better. And here, I, I don't know yet. I, I don't know yet what the, like, what the precise thing is. How, how will the next system be designed? And, and yeah, so I'm looking at, just looking at that. I think that's a great point, Mika. And just to add on top of that, I think nothing is wrong with DeFi. I think it, it, it'd be amiss if we extrapolate here and say one protocol going down on a very risky type of experiment on the risk curve doesn't mean that DeFi has failed us. In fact, I think DeFi is really resilient um, and, you know, has survived many shocks um, and liquidations. I think what I want to look at is the level of exposure of some of these lending protocols that had UST as collateral. Um, 
it'll be interesting to see which projects uh, in the Terra ecosystem, including like Avalanche also that had like UST exposure, like how they absorb uh, those losses or, or that shock. Um, and, you know, I think there are nascent DeFi ecosystems outside of Ethereum that are perhaps a little bit more fragile, might not have kind of like a keeper, like liquidator system as robust as in Ethereum. And so those are the things that I'm looking at. But I think it would be amiss if we look at this in episode and say DeFi can't work because I think time and time again, there is more Lindy to DeFi and it has operated in a very adversarial environment. The thing that I do worry is, um, you know, I think Luna is, is a very retail ecosystem and my, my, the, kind of my conversations with OTC does is that a lot of funds had exposure to this. A lot of them are kind of feeling the pain and chopping alts relentlessly at a loss to make up for some of the losses. And I think they're going back initially to BTC and ETH. That's why, that's why I think you're seeing some relative strength, uh, in BTC and ETH. Um, although I would, that might be phase one, phase two might be, then they chop BTC and ETH because they get redemptions and, you know, you layer on top of that macro risk, you layer on top of that, the risk of famine down the road, uh, if things continue and the situation in Ukraine doesn't get resolved. And like, I think it's just a very different environment. Like it's, this is, 2018 was was felt just like a crypto kind of bubble popping. Now you have rising rates, many of which crypto investors haven't kind of witnessed. Um, you also have geopolitical risks. And so all of that candidly does make me nervous. I don't think you want to be a hero in this market. Uh, I think the name of the game is kind of surviving and, you know, just waiting how all these things play out. And, and you know, I think maybe the, the Dijon spirits calm down a little bit uh, for better for worse. Santi, I have a question for you actually, which is, mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at the markets, they're absolutely puking, right? Bitcoin and ETH mm -hmm. down 18% on the week. Solana and some others are down like 30, 35% on the week and you know down like 80% off the highs. When are you buying? What is your moment that you look at this market and say, now's the time I'm jumping in? I haven't seen pain. This Man, is not pain to you? This, no, this is no, not no, no, definitely, de definitely not. Man, if anyone that's been in crypto for the last two, three years is way up still, way yeah. up. You want to feel pain? Like, I remember pain. I was thinking about the story when I was met Kane and at the Binance conference in 2019. That was literally that week was the bottom of synthetics. It was trading at 8 million fully diluted market cap. And he said, every time we post something, the, <laughs> the token tanks because it reminds people that they have this bag and they sell it. No one was showing up to these conferences. And I think that's pain. Right now, you know, people may, some funds may blow up for sure that we're way overexposed to Terra and Luna, but I don't think we've seen pain for, for the overwhelming part of the market. Yeah. Mika, what do you think? Have we uh, agree or disagree with Santi? Um, maybe to give a slightly different answer, just the way I think about it is the, 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 the market cycles and what really drives them is having this baseline of really great innovation and then these moments where we come we have this like trigger and we really take off and um yeah i think it's going to be a while to maybe find that really next trigger so whether or not we go like a lot down from here i don't know but i feel like we're at least from the time component still a ways away from really like the next wave of really bringing on user because the really the thing that makes any of this sustainable is like building great stuff that people want to use and hopefully actually getting to like mass user adoption one day. So that's that's the really the North Star on horizon. And I think to accomplish that, there's still a lot of work and it will take a while.
I'm a bit more uh, optimistic. I think um, there's two narratives. One is the Bitcoin hard money narrative. The other one is the ETH merge narrative. Um, they're both going to be a huge deal. I think the ETH merge narrative will allow big funds that are um, you know, environmentally conscious to be able to buy a layer one asset um, being proof of stake. Um, there's going to be just a, a huge buzz when this actually happens. On the Bitcoin side, I think there is a need for hard money more than ever. That will continue to increase as the year goes on. And I think that narrative picks up. So I'm very bullish for those two assets. I'm, I'm still long. I'm not selling anything. Uh, I'm not worried about it at all. Uh, in terms of everything else, I agree. Uh, Mika said, I think there is a need for more innovation. It's time to build. Um, we've had such crazy primary valuations. We've had just absurd numbers of, you know, meme coin billion dollars, uh, you know, things going on. So it's, it's a good opportunity for those things to kind of get washed out. And, um, you know, for the new builders, the new generation of builders, you know, we had 1.0 uh, DeFi, good stuff. You know, you create all these primitives, all these ideas, Ave, all these types of things. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the 2.0, the Olympus DAOs and like some of these experiments, uh, I was not a fan. And I think now is the time to kind of um, have all this smart people that have entered the crypto space from all different, you know, engineering and development and all these different places, um, just go through the rubble and, and see like, what have you learned and what can we actually build um, that is going to be very sustainable going forward. So I'm pretty, I'm quite excited and I don't mind that we're going to go through this kind of building cycle now. And I want to just, those are both great observation guys. I mean, I want to preface like I'm, I'm still like net long, like I'm a perma bull. I think the fact that this industry is one trillion now is laughable, but you need to take the long view. The problem is I'm just sort of couching this because I don't play much in liquid markets. I don't try to time markets. My pace of deployment in privates, you know, my average deployment across like a hundred deals has been 30, 35 fully diluted market cap. And so I look at that and I say, that's to me, that feels really comfortable because we are entering in a not like we are entering in a kind of utility phase of this evolution of, of this, you know, asset class, you know, it was all speculative for a long time. And I agree with you, Jordy, like the merge Bitcoin ossifying as kind of a non-sovereign store of value NFTs, like, you know, all of that is really powerful. It's not going away. It's just going to take time. And I think that that's, that was my point, which is, I think time and time again, these narrative, there's always a mismatch between narratives and fundamentals. I think we were in a period over the last six to 12 months of just overextended uh, narratives and the fundamentals not catching up as much and, and definitely agree with you. We need more innovation and episodes like these are never fun, but they do serve as, as moments to look back upon, reflect, and then kind of improve upon as a space, which, which is we tend to do really well, especially because it's open source. It's a great point, Satu. Uh, Mika, Jordi, this has been great. Any last parting thoughts here? Yeah, just that I, I'm also always a permable and always long this stuff, uh, irrationally so. But And I would just love to have a market where uh, in the DeFi 2019-ish, maybe early 2020, I can't remember, like when, uh, 2020 summer, it really started the price appreciation. It felt like, oh, wow, well, we have all this great stuff. Why isn't anyone like reacting? Why doesn't price react? Like we, we should be so much higher. No one's getting this. And I would love to be in that point again where, oh, we have all this cool cool stuff and why isn't this taking off? They'll realize it at any moment and then they do and then we sort of get to get to the next place. I'd love to have that experience again. 
yeah, so my final thoughts, I guess, um, I'm mainly focused on the people that lost a lot of money, the, the lunatics and the other people that tangentially maybe lost money without even, um, you know, really understanding the risks that they were taking. Um, I think it's important to not like uh, pile on on like the, the sadness that's out there. I see like a lot of um, dancing on graves and that kind of thing. I really hope that people kind of get their mental health um, stable and start building optimistically towards the future instead of, um, you know, view this as a catastrophic thing that can uh, be recovered. I think everybody can recover. And um, we saw a lot of those stories from like the last cycle where people got wiped out and then have done extremely well in, in like this uh, latest cycle. So, um, yeah, I think let's... Let's try to just kind of get through and um, above above all, just remember the lessons more than anything. Like don't don't take risks that you don't understand. And, um, you know, it is a bit of a casino out there. That is one of the use cases of crypto. But when you're in a casino, you need to kind of know what your limits are and, and be quite careful. I think that's very well said. I think that's a good place to end on. Uh, Mika, Jordy, thanks for coming on. Santi, as always, thanks for uh, being my great co-host on this one. And uh, yeah, if you're listening, uh, be well and things will get better. Mm -hmm.